You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up, y'all? Hey. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. Uh, if you are a listener and you saw this pull up in your podcast feed, you, you're probably thinking... Oh boy, are they actually going to get to the flood? Because last time we released an episode called The Flood and we ended the the, the episode and it hadn't even started raining in the story yet, okay? <laughs> the firmament had not even broken and we, were, we, we had the audacity, the gall to release an episode out there called The Flood and did not even get to a drop of rain. Um, so this episode, we are committed uh, we are going to walk you through the flood story. We're going to get you to the rainbow. We're even going to get to the genealogy of Genesis 10. I, that's my commitment. We this all hold me to it. This is a four-hour episode. This is a four Somebody, Somebody last week texted me and they said, you guys did an almost hour-long episode on the flood. And there was no water involved at all. I keep getting stopped by people who are like, it feels like there's a lot of fighting this season. I'm like, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah because they true. keep saying dumb stuff. Oh, just kidding, Kyle. And I agreed with you. I, I agreed with you. Not with they, me? Kyle. Oh, Kyle. Yeah, I agreed with you. <laughs> no, I got, I'll, I'll just say this. I got lots of emails and text messages. Uh, some of them, uh, celebratory, some of them inflammatory. Uh, there was, uh, there was, there was heat, both good and bad. Uh, and so, if you were a listener who reached out to me, thank you for doing that. Thank you for consoling me. Sometimes these two, uh, they tag team against me, and it's a two-on-one well, situation. So, well, in full disclosure, and we, we I'm, we're not going to go back and talk about it. I've no, we're not. <laughs> we're not going back. But I'm just saying, I am more uh, inclined to your position because of our conversation than I was before. Wow. Whoa. That, I mean, and guys, let me translate that for the listener and JT talk. That is, I'm really actually considering this. I mean, he, I mean, that's a huge move. That's basically a faith of a mustard seed kind of work right there. I'll just be honest with you. Okay. I've I've done some reading since and I'm not there yet, but. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm just sitting here in stony silence. I'm just like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) No. Well, well, we will, we will not go back and retrace our steps, but if you missed the last episode and you're, you're just looking for a good time. And you Go haven't had any controversy this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If 2020 hasn't been hot enough for you, yeah. go back and listen to that right. one and you'll have some more fodder for you. Well, we, we are going to jump in today to keep walking through Genesis chapter 6. Uh, and we're going to start in Genesis 6, 9 because we didn't even make it there uh, last week or, or in the last episode. And so we're exploring Genesis 1 through 11 on the podcast this season. And we're focusing on the flood story and the flood narrative uh, with Noah this week. And so when we look at Genesis 6, 9, this is how it begins. And this is a phrase you've seen a couple of times already. These are the generations of Noah. Okay. So that phrase, these are the generations of, is this Hebrew Toledot phrase. This is a phrase that is part of the infrastructure, so to speak, of the narrative of Genesis and specifically Genesis 1 through 11. This is the skeleton outline that the author of Genesis continues to fall back on. And so when we get to Genesis 6-9, we hear about Noah, who was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And this is said in contrast with what, JT? What have we just heard in Genesis 6 and Noah is contrasting with? Well, and there is a question as to to what this... uh, 
sin or the transgression is, but it's contrasted against the Lord seeing the wickedness of man, the right. overwhelming wickedness of of humanity. The, the text isn't really clear about specifically what it is. Of course, we can make some theological conclusions, but it's contrasted. Noah's righteousness is contrasted with, it says in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Yep. Yep. And this is what, what it goes on to say in Genesis uh, 6, verse 11. It, there's a restatement of this wickedness. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. It was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and then behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he says, make yourself an ark. Now, he, give, he begins to give him instructions on the boat. Like, and, and by instructions, we go ahead, Jen, jump in. Well, I was going to say, before we get to that, if you want an idea of what it means that the earth was wicked and violent, the so we know that the rainbow is going to signify God's never going, spoiler alert, God's never going to do this again. He's never going to flood the earth again. But there is another act of, of, of judgment that occurs in the book of Genesis in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So mm-hmm. if you want a microcosm of what must have been a macro situation at this time, you can look to that story um, for a sense of, so if you've ever f- read that story and felt revulsion or repugnance, think about that as just the common experience of humanity at this time. Yeah, absolutely. That things had deteriorated in a very significant way. Right. Uh, and that Noah is now standing out in contrast with that. And God is going to destroy the earth and he's going to do so through a flood. Uh, and he gives Noah some very specific dimensions on the boat, on the ark, we should say, I guess. Now, this is not an ocean liner, nor is it a speedboat, but it is a very large, it is a very large uh, aquatic mobile, okay? <laughs> and uh, I got to tell you, I, as somebody who's not a builder, when I get to sections where there are dimensions, I have a very hard time spatially of understanding what's at play here, Right. I mean, Jen, just from a Bible, from like a reading the Bible well perspective, am I to, should I be, like if you were doing a Bible study curriculum on this passage, would you have a blank page where you had them chart the dimensions of this boat? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, okay. you could. No, I mean, I, I think, no, I do actually have them chart like the number of days, the increments of days that are recorded for how the, how the flood progresses, because that's actually very interesting to track. But I think in this case, you could do that, but you could also just read it and go, man, that's a, that's a big boat. And I think that the point of the way that the building project is described is to show us that what God is asking of this righteous person is ludicrous in, in human terms. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's in a landlocked area. Um, some scholars would say that there's never been rain in the region it's, or that it's a desert region. Right. Uh, it's a, so it's ludicrous. It's laborious. It's going to take an incredible amount of work and we're going to find that he doesn't have a ton of supporters to help him. Uh, it's protracted. It's going to take over a hundred years to build approximately a hundred years to build. And it's expensive. Like mm-hmm. he's yeah. got to pay for it somehow too. And so I think when you read the description, those are the things you're supposed to be thinking is this is an impossible feat. Yeah, because, absolutely. you know, it's going to point well, to a bigger, impo- quote, impossible feat. 
Right. Absolutely. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned some of those details there, because I think sometimes cinematically, when we think about something like this and we're just reading through the story of scripture, we read it as like God told Noah to build an, build an ark. And the next day he went out and built that ark. And the day after that, the rain yeah. came down. Like <laughs> right. it, it, it feels like it kind of has, because we're reading, you know, if you're reading a Bible reading plan, or even if you're just studying it mm-hmm. and you're just reading through it real kind of quickly, you get the sense of, oh, these things are kind of bop, 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 bop. Just they're, they're happening uh, right after the next, but no, this is a significant like life operation that Noah is undertaking here. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's important too, that we recognize when we get to a position like this, uh, that this flood imagery is being introduced and this, this is going to introduce a water image mm-hmm. from, or, or kind of reinstitute a water image from Genesis 1 that is going to reverberate through the rest of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. Uh, th- this idea of chaotic waters, right? That well, like, and it's also important to note that that word ark is, is sometimes used as casket. And that's something that you see. Mm-hmm. You see that word uh, show up again. It's here and it's only one other place. It's in Exodus when we see that, um, that Moses' mother uh, takes bitumen and pitch and she places him mm-hmm. in a basket slash ark. So it can mean basket, mm-hmm. casket, ark. And so there's going to be a lot of powerful imagery that we see pulled into the New Testament of, um, of a death to life passage through the waters of chaos and death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we could just hit a few of those themes real quick. You mentioned Moses. JT, if you're looking over the, st- the story of Scripture and you're saying, okay, we've got the chaotic waters of the formless and void. We've got Noah with the judgment of the waters. We've got Moses. But at, even after Moses, what are some of the other pictures that we see across the Bible of salvation through the waters of judgment? What are other things that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, one that comes to mind is God's people entering the promised land through uh, yeah. across as they cross the Jordan River. And these are yeah. waters that could have crushed and destroyed God's people as they are fragile and weak and they're entering God's promised land, but they do it mm-hmm. as they inherit a new identity through these waters. And uh, I think Jen would maybe agree this through almost this birth narrative as they're receiving mm-hmm. this new identity of God's people as they inherit mm-hmm. the promised land. And I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I think the one that the New Testament authors pick up most clearly is the waters of new birth, both Absolutely. regeneration from the power of the Holy Spirit, but mm-hmm. then also uh, as we then respond through obedience in baptism. So mm-hmm. the New Testament authors are picking up this theme. And of course, then the early church picks up this theme that that what happens to to somebody who enters the waters of baptism, what they're doing is they're, they're entering entering into the waters of judgment and they're dying to them to their old selves as they literally experience death as well as Satan and all of God's enemies who would destroy God's people but then they emerge victoriously coming out of the ark of baptism so to speak through the cross which is our new ark and we inherit this new identity as God's people who are beloved righteous as we walk by faith yeah. And we, and, and yes, I mean, absolutely. And then baptism was where I was hoping you were going with that. I remember the first time JT, I was sitting in, in a, uh, a training program lecture and you were teaching on baptism and you taught through this theme of salvation through the waters of judgment. And I had never made those connections between the flood narrative and the Red Sea and the Jordan. <clears throat> you know, I think another area that we see over the course of the Bible is a right, the righteous one or the righteous man asserting order over the chaotic waters. Mm-hmm. Noah is a picture of this, mm-hmm. uh, but so is the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. uh, whenever he yep. walks, walks on the water. On the water. Yep. You think about Psalm, t- yeah, 
even the psalmist is kind of testifying to this. Psalm 29, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. This is perspective that Yahweh and the Lord is in control of what seems to be the most uncontrollable force in the ancient world, which is the chaotic waters of judgment, right? Uh, and so I do think, or even Jesus just speaking, peace be still over yep. the waters. So we get some of these themes and the flood narrative. We Sometimes we'll talk about, uh, you know, illusion. Sometimes we'll talk about foreshadowing. I like to use uh, Richard, uh, gosh, is it Richard Bauckham who talks about uh, echoes of the New Testament? Echoes. Yeah, echoes. This idea of, of scriptural echoes. And the flood has a lot of these over the course mm-hmm. of the Bible where it mm-hmm. just is kind of, it's out there. It's, it's, it's figuring in in an important way. Yeah, almost anytime you see water in the Bible, not all of these themes are always present, but a mm-hmm. lot of the themes that are present are, as Jen has already mentioned, God bringing order out of chaos, a destruction of God's enemies. Those who, yep. I mean, you see that in Pharaoh, you see that in this here in, in the flood narrative, you see that in um, uh, in the waters of baptism. He's birthing a new people. He's giving them a new identity. He's cleansing them from unrighteousness and wickedness. And he's also then placing them in his kingdom in some way in, in, mm-hmm. in, as they inherit this promised land given to Abraham, whether it's actual land or an inheritance that's reserved for us in Christ. And then as a result of all of those things, what do we? The, probably the most important thing that we would think about in terms of biblical theology anytime you see water is eventually God is then dwelling with his people yep. almost immediately after water. He is, mm-hmm. he is with us in some capacity that, is, that was different before these waters of judgment. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So, so God tells him, hey, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. Um, everything that is on the earth shall die. And then in verse 18, you get the promise of a covenant. Mm-hmm. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And with every living thing, you get the, you get the call here to bring in two of every sort uh, of animal, of creature, should come into the ark with you. And it says in verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. So, you get this, uh, we don't really have the covenant cut yet. Uh, that's going to come after, or the covenant keeping or covenant making ceremony is going to come after the flood. But but uh, God tells Noah, I'm going to bring you through this. I'm going to bring your family through this. I'm going to bring uh, <clears throat> what we might call we're going to, I'm going to bring different kinds or representative kinds of all the animals uh, through the flood as well. Uh, and then it says that this is what Noah did. Noah is obedient to this. He is a righteous one. He listens to God. He builds the ark. He assembles uh, the animals. And then what happens? Well, it says that in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, the Lord God said, uh, to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, take with you all of the animals. And Noah did all that uh, he had commanded him. And Noah was 600 years old. Now, let me just pause here. <laughs> I'm, 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 um, Noah was 600 years old. Now, we've already He's mentioned- those essential oils. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we, we, we've already mentioned this before in an earlier episode dealing with the, the genealogy after Cain and Abel. But when we hear these ages- there's a lot, there's much to do made about these ages and like, well, these ages were uh, pre-diluvian is sometimes what you hear it called, mm-hmm. like diluvian being the flood. These are pre-diluvian ages where, you know, people lived a much older length of time because of the ecosystem that existed prior to the flood. Is there, should we be making these kinds of jumps or should we just be like, wow, this was a very interesting time in the history of the world, in the history of redemption and people lived a long time. 
It's it, because they like, were that's it. They were clean eaters. They haven't eaten meat yet, so they're all living. Right, there. right, right, um, right. Everybody's whole thirty innocent yeah, oils. But like, Jean, <laughs> I, I have to imagine when you've taught through Genesis in the past, somebody has raised their hand and said, "Well, hold on, six hundred years old." Yeah. Yeah, well, so it's six times 100, six times 10 times 10. So, you know, we're, again, as we've seen in other places, um, when when Moses is writing the narrative, he's giving increments that are memorable for those who would want to retell this story in a, in a culture that didn't have the written word in front of them all the time. But I do think that if you, and we didn't spend time on the genealogy, which is a crime, but um, we didn't spend a lot of time there. But the the... The decrease is meant to be seen there for us. You know, the the steady sort of decrease in the mm-hmm. number of years. I mean, you also see Enoch with the shortest lifespan, who is the most righteous, which presses right. against our sense of who should live a long life. You know, the one who is the most righteous. Um, so I think those numbers are doing something. But are we supposed to spend a ton of time meditating on why they live so much longer than we did? I mean, I don't know. I, I think that it's, if you think about the command to rule and subdue and be fruitful and multiply, it makes sense that if there were fewer humans, they would live longer. So they would have uh, more opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. But um, I don't know that we need to spend a ton of time speculating on it. Also, because we got a lot of flood to get through. So. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So let's start raining yet. Well, we're we're we're, we're about it's about we're to start. Close. Kyle, make it rain. Make the it rain. rain, is, it the, rain the rain Kyle. is about to start falling. So uh-huh. it says Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, uh, and so here we are. And there is, I think, a lot of times there's confusion in the next few verses about like how long they're on this boat. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, you know, they were, it seems like they were on the boat for a short period of time. No, they're on the boat for a long period of long time, time here. Yeah. A long time. Because it says in the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, we're in chapter seven, verse 11, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, I don't know if any of us has a real position to take on this, um, but, you know, there is a lot, there's a lot of speculation around what this means that the fountains of the great deep burst, for, burst forth and the windows of the heavens were open. There's a lot of speculation that, you know, that, uh, that prior to this moment, there was essentially a firmament or aquatic enclosure of the world. That's, I mean, am I, I'm not crazy. It's like, like they, did you Google aquatic enclosure before no, no, no. we got on here? No, that, that came right off the top. I'm, I'm, I'm totally, aquarium. This is, I'm like a rapper who's freestyling on the Noah story right now. But uh, aquatic, there's like the, the firmament is essentially like, I'm trying to give an image that makes sense here. It's like a water bubble around the water bubble around (laughs) the earth. Uh, And, uh, and that the flood story is essentially the puncturing of the firmament. And that's the windows of heaven that are busting forth. And that's why there is such a great, uh, that, that explains the degree of water and the changes to the ecosystem. I got to say, I, I, I don't know that I have a dog in this fight. It seems like what this passage wants me to see is that there was a ton of water. Ton uh, of water. The oceans are swelling and water is coming from above. Essentially, like here is Noah and here's all of people, all the people on the earth and all the creatures. And water's not just coming from above, it's coming from below. It is engulfed. 
Well, and as we mentioned in the in the fraction of this story that we got to in the previous episode, this is a decreation narrative. And so if you remember in Genesis 1, God, one of his first acts is to separate the waters from the waters. And so he is recombining. It's all coming. It's all going in reverse right here. So I think that's enough of a statement for us to make about it because the uh, the other nice rhythm that's thrown in here to make us think about that account is um, we keep seeing, and God said, and then it says, and Noah did exactly as God commanded. Um, and so there's that, and God said, and it was so rhythm that has been built in here so that we will think back to that. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, that we, we then see over the course from 7, 10, all the way through 8, 6, sorry, 8, 10, we see um, that the flood story is actually written for us in a highly structured way. It is a chiastic structure. You have seven days that they wait for rain, and then 40 days that the rain is coming and the waters are rising. Then you have 150 days that the earth is flooded and the waters prevail. So that's the center of the structure. And then we're going to back our way out. 40 days of water receding. So you had 40 days of water rising, now paralleled with 40 days of water receding. And then we started with seven days of waiting for rain. And we're going to back out with seven days of waiting for the waters to recede. And when the, and then the dove returns. And then you have two little pairs of seven days at the end of that um, to, to sort of tie up the whole story. Well, and I'm sorry, so one we, pair. I got that wrong. Eight, 12. So when you... So when you say, Jin, maybe a listener just heard you say chiastic, or maybe you've heard it say chiasm or chiastic structure. Mm-hmm. But when you when you said that, Jin, what do you mean? What, if somebody's listening, they're going, okay, I understand there's a lot of numbers you just listed off, but what is a chiastic or a chiastic structure? Yeah, so the way that um, narratives or, or even poetry was written, in, and there is a very poetic uh, feel to this whole passage, was written uh, in, the, in the time that, uh, that Moses is writing this account was that not the way that we think of it, where there's an end stress. It's where there was a central stress. And so you have these bookend statements that work their way inward toward what is sort of the the, the main uh, point of the passage or the main focus of the passage, which in this case is that the earth is flooded and the waters are prevailing over the face of the earth. So that's why you have, um, you have pairs of seven days on the outside and then an internal pair of 40 days and then the central setting of the 150 days of the flood. Okay. That's really helpful. And the this isn't just something that you find in this passage in Genesis. Oh, it's this all is, over. What you're talking about, right, is a structure that you'll find across the Bible deployed in different books and in different genres, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we get to... Um, this moment where the waters begin to open up, Jen has already talked about some of the days here, but it, I think when I heard about the flood story, I focused almost exclusively on the 40 days and 40 nights. I had this idea that like, mm-hmm. I don't know if this was your experience, but when you're hearing this story growing up, you hear about Noah and the flood, 40 days and 40 nights. You think about like, okay, they're like, they're on this boat for, you know, 40, 41 days, whatever. But that's not the case. They're on this boat for almost, what is that? 224, 200. 44 days. Yeah, it's a long time. That's an, it's an incredible amount of time. So it's this is not a we're on the boat, we're on here for 40 days, the rain stops, immediately we're able to get off this boat. No, it rains for 40 days, the waters are on the earth for 150 day uh for 150 days, and then there's another 40 days of trying uh to get onto the land again. So mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an incredible amount of time that they're on here. I don't know what 224 or 244 days works out to in terms of like months and weeks, but that's a long time, right? Yeah. 
So you have a really big boat and a really long time. If that, you know, we talked about main things are plain things, plain things are main things. This mm-hmm. is a great example of that. You could spend a lot of time doing a, a dance with these numbers, but but the most important thing we can see is a really big boat and a really miraculous deliverance that occurs yep. over quite some time. Um, One of the things and it's that done. I, go, ahead, sorry, go ahead, JT. No, you're fine. I was going to say it's it's done clearly. The Lord is the one who's driving the whole thing. Like you look in verse 16 of chapter seven, a really important statement says that then the Lord shut him in, um, that it's mm-hmm. the Lord who closes the ark. He seals in the family. Uh, Revelation 3, seven says what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. So even though it is this sort of preposterous, how can this even happen the way that we're being told, um, we're seeing the sovereign hand of God delivering um, his, his, his righteous one uh, through the waters of yep. death in an unsinkable ship. Mm-hmm. There has never yeah. been, you know, a more unsinkable vessel. This ship is not going down because the Lord has done it. Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your copy today. Visit CSBLifeCouncilBible.com to get your your copy today. I, I like your language of making the main things the plain things and the plain things the main things. I mean, I, Jesus has a lot of commentary in the Gospels on this account. Mm-hmm. And the main thing that he talks about, and it's this is not a popular topic to talk about, but God's judgment of sin. I mean, this is just, if we're talking in theological categories, this is just clearly God's judgment against sinners. Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And this is one of those clearest examples where because of the sinfulness and corruption of humanity, and here's what can be a little challenging for us. Yes, it was a big boat. And yes, it was a a, a lot of water for a long time. It was a sudden and unexpected judgment Mm -hmm. against sinners in a sense that they weren't, you know, just biding their time. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 24. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, So it will be again at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, 
people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. So he's, mm-hmm. he's giving this, this picture that people were fine with how they were living. Yes, they were living in corruption and wickedness and deceit, and it was going to lead to death. But, but they, although they knew they were being deceptive, they, they maybe had, had a sense that God's judgment was so far out in advance and we have time to repent. You know, we can eventually get our lives cleaned up so that we can be in a right relationship with God. But Jesus says they were giving in marriage to the day that Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Yeah. That is how it will be at the coming of the son of man. So Jesus yep. uses this text to talk about the seriousness of rebellion and sinfulness against God that will lead to death, that will come upon us suddenly. He's saying that there is a coming judgment that that will come again in the future. I think we could talk about this being, uh, to use a theological term, proleptically, like pro- brought back to the cross, that, that it is coming at the cross. But it is also coming in the future, Revelation chapter 1 and 22, where all of God's en- enemies will be finally and fully destroyed once mm-hmm. and for all. Yep. So this flood comes suddenly and unexpectedly upon those who are caught in the judgment of God. And I just remember, I forget, I don't know if this was, this was a sermon I heard or maybe it was somewhere else where like, just think about the reality of, of people trying to climb into the ark, mm-hmm. like fingernail scratches, mm-hmm. like try, like, like they're being judged because of their rebellion and it is a good and just judgment against their sin, but real people died. Real humans, yeah. real animals. God's creation was decreated, not just mm-hmm. in a big picture theological sense, but in a real judgmental sense. And Jesus says that that's happening again for all of those who don't repent and believe in the coming of the Son of Man. Yeah, and along, yeah, absolutely, JT, and that's sobering. Alongside that, it pushes back against overly individualistic accounts of sin and God's mm-hmm. judgment, because this is a worldwide cataclysmic cosmic judgment. This is not just, God is not just wiping away uh, those those individual sinners who have sinned against him. He is wiping away the whole of a broken world. I mean, he's, right. he's replacing it through judgment and, or restoring it through judgment is probably a better way to say it. And uh, that is, I think, if it, there's both the, the, uh, the nearness of God's holy judgment is playing in this story and playing in Jesus's commentary on it. And the comprehensiveness of God's yeah. judgment uh, is playing in this story as well. Uh, and I think that that's one of the things that you see over and over again in Genesis six through eight is the destruction of all the earth, right? Mm-hmm. Like wiping away every kind of, like, it's just, it is comprehensive. So, um, okay. So at the end of the 40 days, God, uh, it says that the, that Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and he sent forth a raven. And uh, the raven, you know, it says it went to and fro until the earth waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground, but the dove found no place. She returned to him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove and she did not return to him anymore. I, Listen, I, I think one of the things that I wanted to just ask here is what are some of the connections or should we draw connections uh, between the dove and the ark, the spirit hovering over the face of the waters and the baptism of Jesus? Because this seems pretty, this seems pretty on the nose, doesn't it? That like you've got the dove going out, uh, kind of giving a picture to Noah of what is 
are is, are things still chaotic or have they been brought to order? Then you have the dove descending on Jesus or the spirit in the form of a dove descending on Jesus at his baptism who has just passed through the waters of death. This There's got to be a connection here, right? Am I crazy to feel like, oh no, these are two things that the 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 Holy Spirit through the human authors is trying to show us are connected to one another? Or am I just forcing that? I, I don't hear, know. I want to hear. Okay, so I was going to say I want to hear what Jen has to say. Okay. Uh, but 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 before we hear what Jen has to say, just to remind <laughs> our, our listeners, we did this at the beginning of the podcast talking about different kinds of reading of Scripture. Mm-hmm. So Jen, Jen has been focusing us on really importantly, like like listening to what the author of Genesis has to say and trying to keep keep it there. But then we've also talked about a canonical reading of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's what Kyle's bringing up is the belief that the Holy Spirit is the one who carries along authors, human authors, and intends what they would write, whether that be Moses writing Genesis or Paul writing Romans. Therefore, we would look as as spirit-indwelt believers for connections and themes between authors who are writing hundreds or sometimes thousands of years mm-hmm. apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think in terms of the textual context, um, I note that in verse one of chapter eight, it says that God sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. And that's that ruach word. That's that word that we see in Genesis one about the spirit hovering over the waters. Um so I think we've seen mention of that spirit idea back mm-hmm. when the wind begins to blow because that's 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 signifying that the the creative that we've had the decreation and we're about to have the recreation. And so if you follow that train of thought and the parallels between this portion and the the creation narrative of Genesis 1 when we get to uh Noah releasing birds into the heavens, you would tie that to God populating the firmament with the birds of the air. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, I'm not trying to remove it from its New Testament context. I'm actually really interested to hear how JT is now going to bring us to, or you, Kyle, are going to take us to a canonical understanding of this um, scene because I do think it's like, oh, that feels, it does feel awfully tightly tied there, um, that it was a dove, you know, and all the significance there. Right. But, um, but I feel more confident in saying how it fits within the book of Genesis. I'm, I'm, I'm a little slower to, to speculate yeah. about how it fits with that New Testament scene. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I had not, uh, to be honest with you, I had not considered um, the uh, repopulation of the the heavens or the the air, uh, and uh, and kind of the okay, we've moved from decreation back to creation. The waters and the earth are separating. Mm-hmm. Here come the birds, and we know that he's going to go forward. And right, what does God say right when they get off the ark? Mm-hmm. Go out from the ark, you and your wives and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is right. with you, all flesh, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So we immediately are back to beasts of the field. Yep and people and like be fruitful and multiply. That's doubled down on in the actual blessing of Noah and the covenant that God makes with him. Hey, we got a reinstitution of that. So Jen, I hadn't considered that. And I think that's a really good perspective. The only thing that I would say about the baptism of Jesus, and I don't know, maybe I could just be way off here, is that in the if the flood story is a salvation of the righteous one mm-hmm. or even consecration of the righteous one through... Um, because I do think that while the, the Genesis story about Noah is obviously he's being saved from judgment, he's also being consecrated for what God is going to call him to do. This is like, mm-hmm. a, it's not just a, 
oh, oh, I'm rescuing from this. It's that I am preserving you through this so that you can be a representative now of what righteous living will look like in this new earth, this new restored earth. And so too in the baptism of Jesus, in the baptism of Jesus is that Jesus is not being saved from right. the judgment of God, right. but he is being consecrated and anointed mm-hmm. uh, for his public ministry of, of uh, unfolding and inaugurating the kingdom of God in the world. And so it just seems to me that this dove form of the Holy Spirit in the baptism of Jesus, we've talked about it when we were covering Samuel being certainly a picture of an anointing ceremony, but it seems like it also resonates both with the picture of uh, Noah. I was about to say Mm -hmm. noses. Noses. (laughs) You guys know noses. Um, uh, it It seems like in the baptism of Jesus, we get a picture of Noah who has been uh, preserved through the waters of judgment to be a bearer of the righteous kingdom. You get a picture of Moses in the greater Exodus that he's been passed through the waters of judgment to lead to a new Exodus. And you get a picture of David in in the fact that this is an anointing ceremony with pronouncement of beloved son. To me, combining those three figures at the beginning of Jesus's ministry is such a crucial, mm-hmm. crucial thing that I just feel like for an for a Jewish person who's like hearing about the baptism of Jesus, they're going, whoa, whoa, hold on, a dove? Well, yeah, whoa, I feel like okay. I've heard this before. Hold on. Parting like, of waters, yeah. Exactly, mm-hmm. Pronoun- pronouncement of beloved son yeah. and anointed one. It's like, oh boy, this is... Is this the is this the Noah King? Is this the Moses King? Is this the Davidic King? I just feel like it's all there. So, mm-hmm. but maybe the dove thing is too. No, heavy no, no. Too. I totally agree. I think it's just that. Uh, no, I agree that it is there. I think that we forget to look backward before we look forward sometimes. No doubt so about I that. like to kind of like say, hey, and this has all been being set up since page one. Absolutely, absolutely. J- JT, would you add anything to that? Uh, no, I think that's all really helpful. I- I actually had not thought of it in terms of Jesus's personhood, kind of the way you're doing it in his kingship. I think that's really helpful. I'd always read it, uh, not always, the way I, had, I was going to talk about it was, you know, it says in chapter eight, verse 11, that, so one other thing that's important to note here, we didn't talk about this earlier, but there's three kind of Mesopotamian accounts that we have talked about in previous episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that the biblical account differs significantly is the Babylonian hero sends out a dove and then a raven and Noah mm-hmm. does the opposite, mm-hmm. believing that a raven can fly longer, is more prone to to uh, being able to survive in a storm. And then he sends out the the raven once the waters begin to subside. However, or the, sorry, the dove once the waters subside, he sends the dove out and it comes back and it says, it couldn't find anything. Then verse 11, the dove came back to him in the evening and behold, there was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters were subsiding. Then he waited another seven days, sent out the dove and she did not return to him anymore. And we don't ever hear of this dove presumably landing, but if you're just reading only the Genesis account, you're thinking to yourself, oh, the the earth has been recreated. The dove eventually found a place where she could land and live in God's new created world. Mm -hmm. And so when when we hear the next time of a dove descending upon upon something, it is descending upon Jesus. And it certainly, I think, is anointing. It's talking about his his Davidic kingship for sure. Mm -hmm. But he also, I think, becomes the the anticipated promise and fulfillment of the new creation yeah, and the yeah. land that God's people are going to inherit. Yeah, that's so this, is, this is the land that, most, that Noah is looking for, but it's actually represented not just in the kingship of Jesus, but the inheritance that we receive in Jesus. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think that's good. I, I love how we just cover that passage because I think that 
honestly, that was really fun to do with the, with the, both of you because it feels like Jen is helping us see. Like I did not see at all the decreation repopulation thing. I'm zooming right past that to get to Jesus uh, in the baptism ceremony. I'm like dove. I'm like dove, dove, we're, dove. Okay, let me find the dove. Right? It's like okay, where's the next dove? Um, and uh, and you know, and I but I think that that's such a good picture of hey, this is how the story is unfolding in Genesis, and then you kind of but. And then you look at, well, what is happening in the New Testament? Anyways, I just learned a lot there. That was really valuable. I'm glad we talked about that. Um, all right. So, uh, okay. So we get the the end of, their, they're coming off the ark and God tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Essentially, like we're repopulating the earth, both at a creature level, beast of the mm-hmm. field level, and at a human level. Uh, and then it says in verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then we get a reinstatement of the cultural mandate. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it goes on. I mean, like that's repeated again in verse seven of Genesis chapter nine as well. And then in uh, verse eight, you have God said to Noah and to his sons, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is within you or that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow and the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I, I just want to maybe let's walk through this uh, because there's a lot here. Mm-hmm. Um, the first thing that I might ask is we're, we are to see Noah and his family as a, the new Adam and the new Eve, right? Like this is, it's a new creation and we get almost word for word the exact same call that gave, God gave to the first humans, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this, is, this is a... Uh, a recapitulation, a reiteration. It is a replaying of that Genesis 1 story with Noah and his family. I I think maybe a question that I have lingering, and I have some thoughts on this, but I'd love to hear from y'all. Is the covenant with Noah purely like a covenant to not judge the earth by floodwaters? Like, is that is that what the covenant with Noah is? And the reason I ask that is because the covenant made with Noah, it definitely cuts differently and feels different than the covenants with Abraham and with Moses, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. This feels very, it feels creation cosmic oriented in the sense that like God is saying, I'm not going to judge the whole earth through a flood again. It is made to Noah and his generations, but at this point, everybody that comes after Noah is going to be the generations of Noah. He's the only family left. Um, but this covenant feels different than the other covenants we might find in the Old Testament. Is it really, is this covenant just about God's not going to judge the earth by floodwaters again? Kyle, are you saying it feels more narrow? Yes, absolutely. Doesn't it? 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. It does feel no, more narrow to me that because we do know, and, and maybe you guys, it'd be interesting to have a conversation about this. I mean, God is going to judge the world again. The Bible tells us he's going to judge it through fire. So it's not that God is saying, I'm not bringing my judgment upon my people again, but rather I'm going to bring it differently. So I would read this fairly narrowly that he is simply promising an everlasting covenant to not God, to not judge humanity through a flood, but that doesn't mean he's not going to judge God's people again through other means. Right. Absolutely. Right. Jen? Yeah, I would go, I would, I would go for that. Okay. It just feels, it feels, I guess, broad and that it's cosmic, but narrow into what is actually being promised. Yeah. Like it's not the salvation of all people. It's not, it's not the blessing of Abraham. Right. It's not blessing to the nations. It is It is with the world. I'm not going to curse the world again because of the sinfulness of humanity. And I'm not going to judge the world through a cataclysmic flood. That's well, right. I think it's significant that we see a salvation through water here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to not solve the problem. I mean, you're right. going to find out because not only is this a new Adam and Eve, but we're going to see the new Adam fall uh, into sin in a garden tempted by fruit. So right. like it's it's all gonna, you know, we're gonna get this replaying of that whole thing. And so um, they're, they're delivered through water uh, and immediately there's, a, you know, Noah's gonna offer a, a blood sacrifice, right? Yep. And there's talk of blood and the significance of blood. Now you're gonna eat things um, that are, uh, an, you're gonna eat animals, not just plants. So in other words, your survival is going to be tied closely toward the shedding of blood. Every time mm-hmm. you make dinner, you're going to have to kill something. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, and then there, the idea of atonement is being heightened. Um, there's been a passage through water, but there is yet to be a deliverance by blood. And and that will require the, the true and better Noah. Yeah. And this is, you know, um, I remember uh, whenever I was reading through this uh, with a Hebrew professor, um, Mike Rasmussen, I'm indebted to him for this, but he talks about how he's like, you know, he was like, what is the symbol of God's covenant here? Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, it's a rainbow. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, it's a rainbow, but it's a bow. Like mm-hmm. the Hebrew word that's used here is bow, like Weapon. Bow, and, bow and arrow. Right? Yeah. Like, and that he was like, and where is it pointed? It's pointed to God. Mm-hmm. That is the direction. So it's not that there's not going to be a judgment for the sin of the world and the brokenness of the world. Mm-hmm. It's that the ultimate judgment of that is going to be borne by God himself. He is going to receive the great judgment for the brokenness and the sinfulness of the world and of humanity and, and specifically of his covenant people. And so I thought, I remember sitting in class the first time he made that connection. And I was mm-hmm. like, wait, wait, what are you telling me about? Yeah. It's like, yeah, God has hung his bow in the sky. Yeah. And essentially he's saying it's aimed at me now. And I thought, mm-hmm. wow, I had never, ever considered that. Is that, was that just something you guys knew? Like, yeah, I, I grew up knowing that. No, I, I didn't okay. get up until I was studying Genesis, but it's okay. like, oh, that makes way more sense. Yeah, It definitely makes it feel less cute. Yeah. Right. You know, like, oh, look, you know, it's a pretty rainbow uh-huh. up in the sky that, you know, that's, that's a reminder. It's like, no, this is a symbol of ancient warfare. That's well, exactly right. And it's not that God is implicated, therefore judging himself, but he is the innocent one and is taking right. upon the implications of humanity's sin. Yep. So it's after... Good. Yeah, so after this covenant is made, we have a new family in a judged, restored world, and what happens? Well, it turns out that sin was not just outside the ark. It was still living inside the ark in the hearts of those who were being preserved. Yep, and it it immediately starts playing out, and it Mm -hmm. looks 
eerily familiar, mm-hmm. doesn't it? It mm-hmm. looks very, very familiar to us. We hear in Genesis 9, verses 18 and following that the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, an important editorial note that will be very significant mm-hmm. in just a moment. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine, became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward. They did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. Now, let's first talk about the kind of thematic connection between the Genesis 3 account, because what, what has Noah done here? I mean, it's, it's definitely written in a more, it's a different, the details are different, but the substance is the same here. Right. What, is, what has Noah done? Okay, so we have uh, a watery deep that he emerges from, placed on the earth, given dominion, blessed and commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Then he tends a garden, the vineyard, uh, the fruit of the garden occasions a sin and a fall. The sin exposes his nakedness. His nakedness is then covered by another. The father's sin is going to lead to the son's sin, basically that his son sins against him in that. And the result is a curse on posterity. Um, and so that's what, you know, we're, we're being tied very closely to the, to the story of Genesis 3 and, and what happens there as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then ongoing conflict between the seed. Yeah. The, exactly. The, the righteous seed and the unrighteous seed. And the unrighteous, seed. that's right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so to, to move towards that, you know, so we have Noah who's pretty much naked and ashamed again, uh, like Adam and Eve were. And now we have the curse on Ham. Now, we need to pause here because well, there is— Well, hang on. Yeah, because we don't have a curse on Ham. Like no, exactly. You've seen this repetition here and that's what we have to pay attention to. Like we're bored by the mention of now Ham was the father of Canaan. And yep. then we see it again, right? It's brought Ham, the father of Canaan in verse 22. Um, and then when we see who, how Noah responds, he does not say cursed be Ham. He says yep. cursed be Canaan. And, yep. and, and so it's important for us to realize that Moses' original audience, right, is listening to this really hard. Why? Mm. Because he's writing this to them right before they go into Canaan, Canaan where all their enemies are going to be. And so what Moses is doing here is setting up um, the people of God for what's about to come next. He's saying, do you want to know why you have enemies living in Canaan? Well, let me take you back to the original uh, story about that. And and that is the point of, like, that is why this is here. This is what's happening. Uh, And this is the the historical rootedness of the Canaanite peoples and specifically the opposition between Israel and the Canaanite peoples. And that is what it is. Uh, And it's important that we state that clearly and unequivocally because this little passage has been the source of widespread confusion, mm-hmm. although it has become certainly more, it, it has become uh, exceedingly rare to find this. Um, but there was a very large portion in the history of the church, specifically the church in America, where the curse on Ham, which is really not a curse on Ham, but a curse on the descendants of Ham, was used as the justification for the enslavement of African peoples. And right. it was... It was so significant. If you're familiar with Ibram Kendi and his book, Stamp from the Beginning, he talks about this as one of the dominant kind of ideological lines that kind of was the 
uh, the root of the rotten fruit of slavery in America was that there was a justification for the enslavement and abuse of peoples based on the curse of Ham, which is again, not a curse on Ham, but a curse on Ham's descendants, which is Canaan. The point of which is not to say that there is an ethnic people group that we should enslave or abuse, but is to help chart a pathway forward for God's people and understanding their broken relationship with the people of Canaan. Yeah, That's what it's there for. We can't even begin to calculate the horrors that resulted from this misreading of scripture. And it goes back to a simple Bible literacy principle. If you can rely on people not knowing what the text says, you can use the text to accomplish whatever evil you want. Mm. Absolutely. And so it's so important for us to to not just take a secondhand understanding of the scriptures. Look at the damage that was done with this one passage. Like, Capti Bapti can tell us when the Southern Baptist Convention finally issued a statement on this. When was that? Do you know? Oh gosh, it was in the nineteen nine. It was in nineteen ninety five or two thousand when yeah. they issued uh, their statement on this. That's a roughly a hundred conservatively. It's one hundred and fifty to one hundred and fifty five years after the formation of the convention, where there were many who held this view. Yeah, rough. So awful. Yeah, and you talk about the and 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 also too, it's a good note on what you're saying, Jen, that when we talk about knowing our Bibles better and know, knowing how to read them well, we're not just talking about something that has internal implications. We're mm-hmm. talking about something that is to know your Bible well is to uh, be somebody who can walk in the world in the way that God has intended and to be a beacon of truth in the midst of a culture of falsehood. Uh, and I think that this is a great example of the implications of knowing how to read the Bible literally. Uh, and, uh, that certainly resulted in widespread abuse and tragedy. Uh, so curse of Canaan, um, we move beyond this and we get to the nation, the kind of chart of nations descending in Genesis chapter 10, right? Because it says, listen, uh, it's not just a curse on Canaan, but it's blessed to be the Lord, the God of Shem. Mm-hmm. Let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. And then we move into the descent of the nations and we're getting a picture that the world is being populated here, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they're being dispersed. They're uh, new cultures, new tribes are being formed. Uh, new people groups are being established across the expanse of the earth. Is there anything else in Genesis 10 that we should note here in terms of the genealogy? I'm looking something up. I, I, I read something, gosh, it's been years now uh, that I'm just trying to find. I think I just found it. Um, one of the things that Christian tradition has recognized is this table. It's called the table of, uh, table Genesis of nations. 10 is the table yeah. of nations. And there's 70 of them listed, if I remember correctly. And the, this table's figure of 70 for the world's nations is then alluded to by Jesus in the sending forth of 70 disciples as recounted in Luke chapter 10, one to 16. And the Christian tradition has recognized that the church is taking up the charge of this uh, bringing this promise or blessing of God's new creation in Jesus by the sending of the 70 disciples to the nations, which I think is something that's really important. And then Luke's ascension narratives in Acts 1.8 contributes this to the universe that, sorry, he says the universality of the Lord's commission for the church. This motif of the inclusion is reflected in the telling of the spirits coming at Pentecost. So the, the point of this table of nations is, is, is that, is that God's people are being dispersed. We're going to see this again in Genesis chapter 11, but ultimately God's promise and God's blessing is going to reach all of those nations through the good news of Jesus. 
Absolutely. Think how close we are to Genesis chapter 12 at this point where Moses is going right. to write um, the the covenant with Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that's that's what's Absolutely. being set up here in the table of nations. Absolutely. And if it, listen, if you've been following along, you know that we did an after the fact episode with Dr. Tracy McKenzie. Um, and he actually goes through here in the genealogy in Genesis 10. If you missed that, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. Um, he made some comments about the use of the name Shem here through Genesis 10. And I can't properly convey what he said. Uh, it was further downfield than I am familiar with when it comes to the Hebrew at play. But it was fascinating to hear kind of how this story plays out and maybe to see some things in the genealogy that we might often miss. But this genealogy leads us up to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And we'll actually discuss this in an upcoming episode. I love the story of the Tower of Babel and I love its relationship to the call of Abraham. And so we're gonna get into this in the days ahead, but this is probably a good place to land the plane since we're 53 minutes in <laughs> to an episode. Hey, they wanted a flood episode, they got a flood episode. You we got a flood it, episode. We yeah. did it. Yeah, there was a there was a deluge of content. Oh, huh? no. Come on. Uh, listen, if, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. We're Knowing Faith Podcast on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Uh, in our next episodes, we have some great stuff coming up. We've got uh, uh, some time with uh, Tish Harrison Warren. We've got some time with Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. We'll cover the Tower of Babel. And so stick with us as we finish out Genesis 1 through 11 this fall. Grace and peace. <laughs>